netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, I'm Mike Zimmer, and welcome to this FX podcast. This week, Jeff's actually doing the interview. I get to do the intro. And he's talking to Dr. Batul Jeffrey, who's a MD, a specialist, actually, an eye specialist. Uh, she's a specialist in corneal and external diseases. She's on the faculty of the uh, UCLA Jules Stein Eye Institute. And Jeff wanted to sit down and talk to her about issues to do with eye health, because obviously, as visual effects artists, our eyes are absolutely everything. It's a fascinating discussion about issues and certainly illuminating to me for very aspects that of health, I guess, that I would have associated otherwise with um, completely different uh, things, <laughs> almost like uh, heart disease and uh, vitamins and things that are all, of course, go to affect our eyes as much as anything else. Anyway, let's hear that uh, interview now that Jeff recorded uh, earlier last week. Well, thanks for joining us. I um, obviously came to see you because I had problems and had to have cataract surgery based on some uh, medications I was taking that accelerated things. And I learned a lot doing it, and I found you fascinating with uh, the information about how much eyes there is that I don't understand. And when we talk on this podcast about eyes, oftentimes we're talking about rendering eyes, like actually making photorealistic eyes. But I really want to talk today about taking care of your eyes and some of the things we can do to, to help ourselves as artists not wear our eyes out. And, and, and it seems like there's so much stuff going on right now in terms of from morning till night, screens from TV to computers to iPads to workstations to everything. It just seems like we're barraged by imagery. Absolutely. And uh, I agree. The eye is a constantly fascinating um, organ. And uh, just to give you some idea of its complexity, we have subspecialties within ophthalmology that are um, that cover seven different um, fellowship training um, requirements. So we have, for example, neuro-ophthalmology, which is a completely separate field, glaucoma, retina, pediatric, which is completely separate from general ophthalmology, and then, of course, cornea, which is um, what I do. So it is a very complex organ and uh, something that we take for granted and we use it, and sometimes we abuse our eyes. And uh, just like repetitive strain injury is now known to affect wrists, and you know you get carpal tunnel, and uh, athletes know all about repetitive strain on their knee and uh, their ankles and all of these things. We don't think about this happening with our eyes, but our eyes are also affected. And um, the level of strain we are now putting on our eyes because of the uh, technology available is having a lot of consequences on the population vision in general and then um, in a very individual sense what happens to people at the end of the day. So one of the things that's happening to the population in general is that uh, we are becoming much more nearsighted as a group. And um, you know this is especially important for um, the younger members of your audience because the younger we are, the softer our eyes are. And the more susceptible they are to feedback from the brain. And, uh, you know, there was a controversy in ophthalmology for a long time um, where we weren't sure if it was nature or nurture which caused people to become more and more nearsighted. And the studies were kind of controversial. But uh, I think the newer evidence is very suggestive that, yes, you know, 
genetics has a lot to do with it. However, when we're straining our eyes with that near work demand all the time, we are becoming more nearsighted. And the younger you are, the more susceptible you are to it. So there's now uh, big public health campaigns happening in places like Asia where nearsightedness is so hyperendemic that they're trying to get people away from their technology and trying to get children outdoors for a while. Because we now know that the opposite of staring up close, that is to look far away, especially in natural sunlight, can actually be protective against myopia. Hmm. So that's in a in a broader sense of what this repetitive strain is doing. Um, but, you know, on an individual level, what... Uh, what is happening is that people are noticing immense fatigue and tiredness at the end of the day. And uh, that happens for a number of reasons. The first thing that happens is that when you're focused on a visual task, such as your computer, your phone, I mean, these things are just ubiquitous, or when you're driving or even watching TV, your brain immediately suppresses your blink rate. So we have actually videotaped people and if you're resting quietly, you have a certain blink rate per minute. And that's crucial to redistributing the moisture across your cornea. The lid movement across the cornea is absolutely critical to spreading a thin layer of moisture constantly across the cornea. And the instant you're given a visual task, and again, we videotape people doing this, you go into stare mode. And that means that your brain suppresses that blink rate. Now, if you think about this very, very fine tear film, it's it's super thin. It's just a few microns, but it's super critical. And as you continue to stare, as you don't blink, the center of the cornea starts to have a breakup of the tear film. And then that tear film's gone, it evaporates. And then the dehydration process begins of the epithelium of the cornea. And uh, to sort of, you know, put it in very easy visual terms, imagine if you cut a piece of citrus on a hot day and you leave it exposed on the counter, it doesn't take long for it to develop this kind of this crusty um, appearance. Well, as horrible as that sounds, that actually happens to your own cornea. So under the microscope, when we're looking at a nice, healthy cornea versus a cornea that's been dehydrated from overstaring and, you know, overexposure, um, you know, a nice, smooth, wet cornea would look like the appearance of, let's say, smooth glass whereas a dry cornea starts to take on the appearance of frosted glass. Was that affected also by weather? Like, for example, California, they always say, is a desert. And, you know, my eye doctor, when I first moved here, when I first started in contacts, was like, you're going to need rewetting drops a lot. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Huge impact. So climate, weather, and then your um, visual demand has a huge impact on how dehydrated and how quickly um, you get dehydrated. Well, sitting even, just working hard on a shot, for example, staring at a monitor, mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden you get sucked in and you're totally unaware and you go to stand up and it's just like your body goes, oh, you've been sitting for too long. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that people don't even notice their eyes are doing the same thing. Absolutely. So dehydration is one part of it. The other part of it is the strain that it puts on your focusing muscles. So the internal muscles of the eye that focus the lens are, you know, very much squeezing and relaxing to change the um, diameter of the natural lens of the eye. That's what focusing effort does. And your eyes are more in a more relaxed natural state when you're looking far away. And far away means out of the 20 feet range. That's called optical infinity. And so your eyes are much more relaxed and in a neutral configuration when they're looking far away. And the closer your point of focus is, the more strain, the more effort 
it takes on your accommodative muscles. So imagine if you were asked to hold up a, f- a cup of coffee above your elbow height and uh, you know, you're asked to just keep holding it. You do okay for a little while, you know, a few minutes and maybe even half an hour. But after that, um, you start to notice strain, you know, you st- your hand starts to shake and quiver and you start to ache. Well, your muscles that are moving the lens of your eye are, are kind of similar. They're fatigable. They fatigue. So when you're constantly staring, eventually you're just going to fatigue those muscles. And that's why toward the end of the day, particularly when all this is adding up, the dehydration stress from not, sta- you know, from not blinking and staring, especially in hot, dry you know, conditions, um, and then on top of that, you have this accommodative effort then you, your eyes are going to be really, really fatigued at the end of the day, and you just feel like you can't see as well. And you can basically increase that exponentially for people who are contact lens wearers, who will dry out even faster and find the contact lens to become really uncomfortable toward the end of the day as well. I was talking to a friend um, recently, and it sounds like you're validating this. He was saying that we both do the same thing now with computers, but we both came up in television, and you stare, you were sitting in the control room directing or working in the control, and you were looking up at a distance and down at a script and back and forth and constantly sweeping your eyes around and doing stuff. But now it tends to be one monitor, one distance, all day long. And he was saying he didn't have any problems with his eyes until he started doing that. Mm-hmm. And I went, you know, I, I think that's about right, although I think age plays into it too. I know my doctor said, you know, almost everybody needs glasses at 40, at most people. Yeah, you know, those those muscles, the accommodating muscles, are the muscles that help you zoom up close are fatigable and they're also susceptible to age just like any other muscle in your body. So their grip strength, you know, of any muscle in your body is best when you're probably about 16 to 18 and then it starts to go from there. So and how does this affect children now? I mean, back then it was don't sit so close to the TV when we were growing up when I was growing up and and now I mean kids are glued to every kind of device at birth. It's not good for them. So it it is it is a big public health concern, and uh, people in Asia are already recognizing it. This is what I started this uh, discussion with. They're already recognizing this. This is going to be a public health problem. They are going to become more and more and more nearsighted. And uh, this is why it is important to encourage kids to have an outdoor sport or an outdoor activity. It's important. All my pediatric patients, uh, my, my practice is not primarily pediatric, but I do take care of some children. Um, my advice to them is use good light. Um, actually, reading in the dark does strain your eyes more. Develop the habit of holding things a little bit at arm's length rather than putting it right up against your nose. Take breaks. Don't abuse technology. Now, in today's world, you know, kids are getting their homework online. They're communicating with their teachers by texting. It's impossible to put them back in a world where they're not using their computer and their laptop and their phone pretty much constantly. But, you know, if you have to check your Facebook, do it in two, five, ten minute sessions rather than spending, you know, three hours just staring at it unnecessarily. So don't abuse that privilege. Um, Use good light. Engage in outdoor activities. And um, for very young patients who are now on the slide, meaning they've now started developing progressive nearsightedness, and every six months they're going in and their, their glasses are getting stronger and stronger and stronger, those, those children really need to be under the care of a specialist because we now have some interventions to stop that slippery slope. Um, myopia, 
is not a benign thing after a while. Um, you know, for people who are low nearsighted um, and they can get out of bed and, you know, they can even spend the entire weekend if they're not driving um, without their glasses or contact lenses, you know, it may be a minor annoyance, but it's not a big deal. But when you're at the level of myopia that is moderately high or above, when you're severely nearsighted, it's a handicap. These are people who cannot get out of bed without their glasses or contacts. They can't see beyond their nose. And these are people who would be in trouble, God forbid, you know, there's a natural disaster or they're in an accident, their glasses get knocked off or their contacts, they can't find them or something happens. Um, so myopia after a certain level is, is disabling. You know, it's a disability. Um, you depend on these crutches, which are your visual aids. And the other thing that happens, and, you know, that's a, a, a whole other discussion, is that very nearsighted eyes also become pathologically long. And very, very nearsighted eyes start to develop more problems in their retina. So very high levels of myopia are not just an annoyance. They're not just benign annoyance. They're actually a, a major health hazard. Are there actually exercises you can do for this kind of thing? Well, we think that uh, for myopia. Well, just in general, for health of your eyes in for general. The, for the health of your eyes, the things that you can do are, again, you know, develop the habit of taking breaks. Uh, we actually have a 20-20-20 rule, which means every 20 minutes of staring at something, take a break, look away 20 feet, which is a relaxing distance, and blink 20 times so you spread mm. the moisture. And if you're a child, you know, you have to be monitored for progressive myopia. And then, you know, if you need to have intervention to stop the myopia with drops and other kinds of things, then you need to be under the care of a pediatric um, specialist. Other um, activity that's really good is just being outdoors and focusing in the distance, being in natural light. Those things are, are good as well. And in general, everything that is heart healthy is also eye healthy. Why is that? Because every organ in your body eventually, eventually depends on circulation, eventually depends on circulation. So if you've got good circulation, if your cardiovascular system is good because you've been physically active, it has a natural and direct impact on the health of your eyes long term. We actually now know beyond question that uh, one of the aging diseases of the eye called macular degeneration is hugely impacted by the level of physical activity. And if your cardiovascular health is good, you are protected from the wet kind of macular degeneration. And the opposite is also true. Interesting. So, it, yes, those uh, general, general physical activity has a huge impact on your eye health. Hmm. What about some of these new technologies? I mean, there's a lot of people right now spending a lot of time with 3D glasses and VR, you know, virtual reality glasses and that's got to be straining even more to people's eyes, I would think. I, I would think so. And, uh, you know, we don't know what the, the direct difference would be between something in a VR mode. We, we just don't have that data yet in a formal way uh, versus staring at a screen up close, really close to your nose. So I don't know if, if that's a major difference in terms of how much strain it causes. But my concern is that they are going to be ever more absorbing and ever more engaging. And so, like you said, you know, you get busy and you're not even aware that you've been sitting in this cramped position for hours and hours yeah. and you get up and you realize, oh, my God, I've been sitting too long. Well, I, I can only imagine when, when you're immersed in that 
reality, in that virtual experience, that you're going to lose track of time even more so. And yeah. therefore, the strain will be added even more. It's so easy to get wrapped up. I mean, the Apple Watch has a feature that is kind of on by default that every every hour at 50 minutes in, 50 minutes in if you haven't stood up, it tells you to stand up. And it mm -hmm. just wants you to stand up and walk around a little bit, mm -hmm. not asking you to jog or anything. It's just saying, get up, stretch. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how many times I've caught myself in the middle of working on something, just dismissing it and going on and doing that the next hour and doing it the next hour and going, oh, I really need to do that. But now I want, I want to look into some sort of 20-minute reminder for the eyes just to, like you say, just focus, count to 20, blink. Blink. and uh, That sounds really good. When we're, when we're kids and when we're younger adults, you know, our tear film is actually uh, pretty good quality. It has a, a tear breakup time, which is pretty good. That means it stays intact without evaporating longer. It's just a better quality tear film. And with age, our tear film quality also declines. So, you know, for younger people, I would say people who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s and 40s, simply doing that intervention of blinking and looking away is a good habit. And uh, for people like me who are over 40 and whose tear film is now starting to decline, it also helps to use some artificial moisturizer once in a while, particularly when the weather is hot and dry and windy, particularly if they're a contact lens user, particularly if they sit and stare at screens all day long, so there's, you know, uh, big environmental stress. And the best kind of lubrication drops out there are the preservative-free kind. Mm. Their preservative-free vials come in a variety of different brands, and just having them close to the computer and rewetting the eyes three, four times a day is a very, very good start. Mm, okay. And drinking plenty of water. Drinking you can't water. forget um, that has an impact too. If you're sitting there and your whole body is dehydrated, then your eyes and your corneas will be dehydrated too. There's no way about, you know, two ways about it. Hmm. So you have to be internally hydrated so that some of it ends up in your tear film as well. You should avoid sitting under direct blowing air of any kind, um, direct heating, direct air conditioning, fans are incredibly fast at dehydrating you. So, you know, you have to be careful. Um, with those conditions hmm. as well. Interesting. Let's talk about color. Um, one of the things I noticed when I, did, I had both, both eyes done, obviously, with the cataract surgery, and in between the two surgeries, I was really aware of if I closed one eye and opened the other, how yellow one eye was. Now, as soon as I switched over to that eye only, the brain kind of figures it out and goes back to being white again. But when you have the comparison of a brand new lens versus the older lens. Now, maybe that's a cataract artifact, but I'm amazed how the brain was able to sort it out with both eyes. Everything looked normally white. But as soon as I did the one eye thing, it was like, wow, is, um, how does, does color change through the years? Is it, is it only for things like cataracts or? Yes. Cataract probably is the condition of the eye that causes the greatest color perception impact. Um, of course, there's color weakness and color blindness and um, uh, male uh, patients are much more susceptible to it because it is an, um, an X chromosome licked condition. Um, but if you don't have a true color perception problem and you have normal color perception, that won't change until you start to really develop cataract. And cataract is um, several things happening in the natural lens of your eye. The natural lens of the eye when you're a baby is an incredibly soft elastic, gelatinous structure, very, very flexible. As soon as your muscles 
start to pull, it changes its shape rapidly, you're able to focus very quickly, and it's incredibly clear. It has a consistency of transparent water. I mean, it's really great. Light transmission through the structure is then perfect, and you see, you know, beautiful images. So after the age of approximately 40 or so, there are several things that start to change. This lens is no longer so flexible. Flexibility is the first thing that goes, and so that's when people start to need reading glasses. Then what happens is the natural lens starts to change its color. And instead of being transparent like water, the color changes to a little bit more like lemonade. That's the first stage of cataract. That's a mild cataract. And you may not even notice that. You may not notice that. I mean, the only thing you might be aware of is, you know, you need a little more light to be able to see small print. Or you may notice that if you're going from light to dark or dark to light, it takes you a second longer to adjust than it used to. You might be aware of a little more glare. But other than that, it's not really perceptible. In fact, we actually term it non-visually significant. And we just put it in the monitoring category and we ask people to come back annually and don't and worry that's about what it. happened to me. That's I, happened I to a, you? It's a family history, correct? Uh, correct. Cataracts? Yeah. So I had a family history and my doctor was watching it very carefully. And it was going normally and everything was fine until I got on that the the steroid that was required for some of the other medication, mm -hmm. and that took it from zero to 60. Yeah, steroids are one of the class of medications that act like fertilizer on cataract and make it really rapidly progress. And especially if you take that um, in combination with elevated sugars, which steroids will elevate your sugar to a great degree, mm -hmm. then it, it can be a much, much more rapid progression. Right. So you can go from mild to moderate and moderate to severe rather quickly. Yeah, I mean, in my case, I went from, as you know, I went from nearsighted to farsighted. I couldn't, I was, in, I was over the holidays, I was in Chicago, and I couldn't read the street signs at a distance. I've never had a problem with distance. And I found myself not needing glasses to read, which I needed as a 40. And then from January till now, so it's, it's uh, August now when we're recording this, but uh, from January till June, I went through three prescriptions, mm -hmm. all of which were glasses that had to be made because I had now needed glasses for distance. So I think your cataracts were progressing at a a much faster rate than normal, and that had to be medication-related. So in a moderate stage, a cataract starts to look more or less like orange juice. And you can imagine it's like, an, like a yellow-orange filter. And the way it affects light transmission into the eye is that the yellow and red end of the spectrum is allowed in. That's, al that's allowed to traverse this yellow-orange filter. But the blue end of the spectrum and also the, the whites they are much more blocked. And so gradually what ends up happening is that you become less and less and less sensitive to the blue end of the spectrum. But it, it kind of creeps up on you so that you're not really aware that's what has happened until we reverse it. So one of the most rewarding things to hear after cataract surgery is people marvel at the color perception. And they go, oh my gosh, I didn't even know. I mean, I knew I couldn't see well because things were fuzzy and blurry and looked dirty. But I didn't even know that I wasn't seeing blue like I used to anymore, or I couldn't distinguish between navy blue and black, or whites didn't look as white. And now that I, and it's especially noticeable when you only have one eye done, because then you yeah. have this internal contrast and, um, you know, you, you can kind of go back and forth and go, oh my gosh, this is a big difference. And what happens after the second eye is done is that becomes a new normal. Yeah. And so your brain then adjusts to it. Now, in your case, it was interesting that uh, when you had one eye done with both eyes open, you know, the good eye kind of took over. Um, and I think there's two reasons for that. I think we probably ended up doing your dominant eye first. So that was going to, to take over anyway. <laughs> 
and uh, and also the brain just likes the the better signal, so the better signal wins. I, in in film and sensor technology, <clears throat> green is always the most sensitive color. Is the eye similar to that? Absolutely. Really. Absolutely. The green end of the spectrum in the, um, the, you know, the visible light range that we are sensitive to, our human retinas are sensitive to, green is right in the center. And green is the color that human beings have the most um, ability to distinguish between um, the intensity of color as well as the variation of color. And uh, we think that there was an evolutionary advantage to this because we had to be able to distinguish between different kinds of leaves. Oh. <laughs> and so we sort of had to know the good grass from the bad grass or, you know, uh, a good leafy tree from, uh, we don't know. Huh. But it is true that um, the green end of the spectrum is right in the middle of our, our sensitive range. And uh, we, we do have much more sensitivity to the, to the green colors. Huh. You mentioned how, how does one start taking care of, you know, your eyes early so that they last you for, you know, your entire lifespan with which in the current age and, you know, babies being born today are easily going to exceed a hundred year lifespan, right? Those babies have been born already. And so it won't be enough to get there just living and breathing. You know, we have to get there feeling good, keeping as many of our senses intact as possible, you know, it's in good shape in other words. And so for the health of your eyes, I would recommend wearing sunglasses. Teach your babies to wear sunglasses. It's never too early. It's like trying to, um, you know, learn the habit of wearing seatbelts. Once you get used to it and there's no argument about it, you'll just do it. Um, if you're given a choice, you may not like the weight of it, blah, blah, blah. No, teach babies to wear sunglasses and make it a lifelong habit. And just like your skin never forgets sun damage, your eyes don't either. There are eye conditions that are directly related to ultraviolet damage. And, uh, for example, cataract is one of them. So is macular degeneration. So is uh, melanoma, which can happen in the eye, just like it can happen on the skin as well. Hmm. So sunglasses are one. Second, don't smoke. Smoking is poison. Smoking is poison for everything, including directly toxic to the macula. And uh, it gives you a a blind spot right in the dead center of your eye. It's a dread disease of aging, so don't smoke. Third, and this we already touched on, is physical exercise. Physical exercise will pay off for years and years and years. And, uh, you know, up to about 40, it's nice to exercise. <laughs> After 40, it becomes <clears throat> critical to exercise because that's going to determine your old age what shape you'll be in when, when you're old and how functional or dysfunctional are you going to be. So good physical exercise, which is defined as 30 minutes of, you know, relatively vigorous activity, minimum is three times a week, 30 minutes. It's not much, uh, but it, it se separates you from the completely sedentary. So physical exercise and then diet. I think ophthalmology was sort of progressive in recognizing the role of nutrition in, um, altering disease courses in the eye, you know, we were way ahead of other fields. So for example, when I was a medical student and uh, growing up, um, if a patient confessed to taking um, vitamins, for example, our professors would just roll their eyes because they thought it was just, you know, nonsense. It made no difference. But uh, then we had a big trial of nutrition. This was called the age-related eye disease study. 
And we looked at the role of different nutrients on diseases like cataract and macular degeneration. And we were really looking at antioxidant vitamins and ingredients like you know lutein and omega-3. Now for cataract, the results are still considered kind of controversial. And so it never became a, a steady recommendation. But for macular degeneration, we kind of showed that vitamins helped. They helped alter the course of a disease. So nutrition then became suddenly very important. And vitamins became a standard recommendation for certain kinds of macular degeneration, not every single kind, but certain kinds of macular degeneration, you can certainly help the course. Um, and then, you know, smaller studies have been showing over and over the um, intake of omega-3 and, uh, you know, the intake of uh, more... Um, uh, proteins from plant sources rather than animal sources. All of these things carrots. have beneficial carrots. effects. Carrots, spinach. Um, you know, oh, if an ophthalmologist be, be, could make your dinner, right, we would make it a huge, big, uh, dark green salad with a, maybe a lot of spinach and kale and throw in, you know, a nice big piece of salmon and uh, some carrots and, uh, and some tomato. I mean, all this is good stuff <laughs> and uh, good nutrition for your eyes, good pigment for your eyes. And yes, Carrots do help with night vision. So mama's right. Hmm. They're, you, it, they're good for your eyes. Interesting. I thought that was an old wives' tale. No, <laughs> it's true. Hmm. Um. So we are sounding more and more like cardiologists as we go along because everything that your cardiologist would recommend, well, guess what? So are we. Why? The common connection is your circulation. In fact, a lot of aging has to do with loss of good circulation. Aging of the brain, for example, aging of the heart, and uh, you want to keep that circulation open and going, and good nutrition, good exercise, and uh, don't smoke. That's a magic formula. And specific to the eyes, of course, wear your sunglasses. Hmm. Um, I'm curious. It, it's such an interesting field to me. I, um, when I was not before I was diagnosed, the um, I developed a bone spur on an optic nerve, and it caused my eye not to be able to to focus at distance. I was unable to drive, basically, for a couple of weeks, and then was diagnosed and treated. But um, I'm just curious. I mean, it's such a wide field. How did you end up going after eyes as a specialty? You know, I, I can only say this was luck because I got into medical school knowing I wanted to be a, a physician, but uh, it was a little bit vague beyond that. So one smart thing that I did was I took a lot of electives as quickly as I could. And, um, and by a process of elimination, I arrived at, at ophthalmology. And so the way it worked was I pretty much hated a lot of things. I couldn't, <laughs> I'm sorry for my OB colleagues, and I <laughs> love them for having taken care of me when I had my own two kids, but I knew I couldn't do OB, you know, I knew I didn't have the right personality for pediatrics. I didn't, I mean, I, there, those were things that were easy for me to rule out. And uh, the corollary to that was that once I walked into my ophthalmology rotation, it just, it all clicked. It suited my personality. I fell in love with the technology. I fell in love with impact you can have um, on a patient's, you know, day-to-day -day life. Um, it's incredible. It's incredible. And uh, so this was, this was kind of fortuitous. And I just sort of found my way into it by taking a lot of different electives. And the technology is amazing now. I mean, I was, <clears throat> I said I made the mistake of looking at the YouTube video of the surgery <laughs> before the first surgery. But in a lot of ways, it made me <clears throat> 
as calm as it did nervous uh-huh. because it, it just my attitude about these things is you do it every day. Mm-hmm. I'm just there for the day. So I just have to put myself in your hands and relax because you do it all the time. And there's nothing to be upset, excited about. But I mean, the fact that it's, it's like a 15-minute surgery for, the, for an eye. You know, it's incredible. It is incredible what we can do with our current instrumentation. So when my grandmother had her cataract surgery, um, cataract surgery, by the way, is replacement of the natural lens of the eye. That natural lens we were speaking about is a small little grape-like flattened structure which hangs behind your pupil in the eye. And that's what light has to go through to be able to reach the retina. And so cataract surgery is taking out the clouded lens, which is now called a cataract, and replacing it with a clear artificial lens implant. So my grandmother had this surgery over 30 years ago, and I remember it. I remember that it was a big production. Why was it a big production? Because we used to make an almost inch-long incision. I mean, that's huge for your eye if you think about it. Yeah, It's huge. And we would basically take the cataract out as a single piece, one piece extraction, and it would take 10 stitches or more to even close the incision. Stitching in the eye. Stitching the eye closed, wow. yeah. And uh, in the very early days of, of this kind of cataract surgery, there were not even lens implants. We didn't have artificial lens technology to put back in the eye. And uh, people would end up wearing one-inch thick glasses, these horrible, horrible thick glasses, because there was no internal focusing mechanism, so it would all have to be done externally. And we were so worried about the incision having problems leaking or getting infected that uh, people would have to stay in the hospital for a whole week afterward or longer. They would have to be in a dark room for a long time because the eyes got so sore and sensitized from this procedure. It was, you know, a big beating it took. So it was a much, much bigger, bigger operation. And uh, in fact, the risk-benefit ratio of that operation in those days was such that we would essentially let people go blind before we would do the cataract surgery. We used to call it RIPE. The cataract had to be ripe before you removed it and put in a new implant. Today's surgery is unrecognizable. It's unrecognizable. The kind of surgery that you had, Jeff, was basically, it's a minimally invasive um, endoscopic procedure. The incision is now so minuscule, it's self-sealing. There's no stitch need. And you go in with a probe that essentially liquefies the lens for us, and we're able to suction it out. And also super cool is the lens technology. So the artificial lens that we're placing in the eye have become so, you know, evolved. The material is so evolved that we can now roll it up into a tip that fits in through that pinpoint little opening that we make to take the cataract out. And once that lens is placed in the eye, it uncurls and Hmm. unfolds and, you know, we fit it into the position we want it to be. And yeah, the whole thing takes about 15 minutes and you remember, you're not completely out. Um, you're, you know, basically sedated mildly, mm-hmm. and the eye is numbed. And in 15 minutes, we're done. And, uh, you know, I, as a precaution, put a bandage on your eye just to protect you for overnight. But if I let you go to the DMV right that second, you would have been able to pass the DMV test, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Compared to what my poor grandma had to go through. Yeah, it was it was amazing to me how quickly the next day took the patch off, and it was like night and day difference, and instantly better, and um, then wait and do the next eye a few weeks later, and mm-hmm. it's been fantastic. I really am um, thrilled with the results, and uh, you know, 
glad that I'm glad that it's not a one-engine scission. That would have been something else. Yeah, it takes a yeah. much, much shorter, much shorter healing time. So now, after I've had this, what what's next? I mean, this is pretty much permanent. This is permanent, and the cataracts won't come back. Cataract is a one-time procedure, and it doesn't come back. Now, sometimes what happens is that as you heal, um, you know, we place your implant inside the capsule of the original lens. And that capsule sort of binds around this lens and locks it into position and makes it a permanent part of the eye. Hmm. And as that capsule is, is, is healing up and tightening around your implant, sometimes it can also thicken a little bit in the back of the implant hmm. where it can cause a little bit of obstruction to light. It starts to make like a filmy um, appearance. And if we note that, then we'd be recommending a little laser touch-up. And that laser is just to open up that little membrane, and that's done by shining a light in your eye. <laughs> so it's not, um, you know, it's not a surgical procedure in the sense that we don't have to open your eye. This is done externally. Where are we with all this technology? I mean, I, I certainly know colorists who, I mean, everybody in our business makes their living with their eyes, but colorists mm -hmm. in particular, um, who've had LASIK surgery. Um, and I know people that are terrified to have any kind of eye surgery because of the business. In my case, it wasn't an option. It was mm -hmm. it was just progressing and the glasses were getting worse. And um, and now, like you said, I, I have great vision now and I'm, I'm happy. But should people be nervous about any of these procedures? Or I mean, obviously it's a, a surgery, but I mean, it seems like it's pretty routine these days. Well, you know, I have to deal with this question a lot um, because I'm counseling people on surgery, either advising them not to do it or to do it pretty much all day long. So... One of the most important things, you know, in a surgical field is this thing called the risk-benefit ratio. What is the level of risk and what is the reward that you will be getting out of it? And um, when somebody has a moderate cataract, the risk-benefit ratio is incredibly in favor of doing the surgery. When the cataract is mild, I tell people to go home all the time and come back in six months or a year. But when the cataract starts to become moderate, then that minuscule risk is absolutely worth taking because the reward has become so great. And in this day and age, with this microscopic incision that we're doing, um, it's actually better to do the surgery before the cataract gets really ripe because what happens then? The risk rises because hmm. <laughs> then you can't do it endoscopically anymore. Then you have to do it with the old, old-fashioned, you know, long incision. So the risk-benefit ratio actually maximizes at the moderate range, which hmm. is where you were at. Hmm. So you have to look at risk-benefit. If the cataract is mild, don't do it. If it's moderate, go ahead and do it because now the risk-benefit ratio is really at its peak. You don't want to let it get ripe because it's unnecessary. And in and in this day and age. You know, people wouldn't tolerate running around until they're blind to get their vision fixed, especially somebody who depends on their vision to make a living. And, uh, you know, if you do have a cataract and it's moderate, it's time to get it out before it becomes, you know, surgically more risky to take it out. Right. And then what about LASIK? What is, is LASIK? LASIK's real common and been used for years now, 20 years, I guess. Yes, LASIK is done on the outside of the eye. It's done on the cornea. LASIK is fundamentally a reshaping of the surface of the cornea so that light bends differently as it goes into the eye. And um, the procedure has been around in various forms for you know a couple of decades now. LASIK is a fantastic procedure for the right patient. All the nightmares that you hear about everything that's been written about, all the people who had the, the bad outcome, 
the if you look at it retrospectively, if you look at their case retrospectively, um, what we find is that over 99% of the time, something was missed preoperatively. There was some indicator, there was some abnormality to the cornea shape, there was some abnormality to the cornea thickness, there was something that was missed ahead of time and the surgeon went ahead and did the surgery anyway. And that's where the problems start. Or if it wasn't with the first procedure, you know, maybe the cornea became too thin and they shouldn't have had an enhancement, but there was an enhancement when it shouldn't have been. In other words, it's a matter of screening carefully. For the right patient, LASIK can be life-changing. It can be really life-changing. The goal is to eliminate contacts and glasses. That's That's what LASIK's for. That's exactly it. And so for people who are happily adapted to their glasses and contacts and uh, who are good with taking care of um, their contacts, you know, LASIK is basically an optional thing. It's an optional thing. And uh, certainly I know contact lens wearers who are successful lens wearers for decades and they've never had a problem and, you know, they're doing just fine and we, we don't talk to them about LASIK. But, um, you know, for other people in whom it is a bigger problem or those people who can't, you know, get out of bed without their uh, correction, it's a much bigger um, issue. Um, one of the very first patients that I did LASIK on during fellowship was somebody who um, was moderately severe, nearsighted, and she was scared of LASIK. She was actually a surgery coordinator. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she was driving with her baby when she got into an accident and couldn't tell for a minute if the baby was okay because her glasses got knocked off. And that moved her. And so she came in and requested a consultation, and she was a good candidate, and she got LASIK, and she was so happy. And, uh, you know, that's just one of those memorable cases. So for the right patient, if you meet all the criteria, and there's a very strict diagnostic protocol um, for LASIK to be done properly. You have to have your cornea measured. You have to have a topography. You have to have a thickness measurement. You have to do all of the, and you have to make sure there's no other pathology in the eye. It requires a full comprehensive eye exam first. So if you select carefully and with today's technology, you know, today's technology is now evolved several generations beyond when LASIK first came out. Um, with the wavefront, with the custom technology, you know, all of these things are giving us results that are phenomenal. And uh, people are seeing better than they ever could, even in their glasses and contacts, which is pretty incredible. I probably know a handful of people that have had LASIKs and mm-hmm. all rave about it. Mm-hmm. Just rave, just especially right after they were just like, oh my God, I've spent my life mm-hmm. with thick glasses or, you know, contacts every morning, just getting out of bed. Yeah. One comment I do have is, you know, um, don't skimp on technology. If you're going to do it, go for the top technology that exists. Do yourself a favor. This is your eyes. You know, don't skimp on technology. And if you open the LA Times or if you open the newspaper, you know, you'll see LASIK advertised from $4.99 per eye to $4,000 per eye. Okay. And the word of warning here is you get what you pay for. (laughs) So be careful. Don't skimp on technology. You know, do some homework research what's available, research to make sure that you've been properly um, gone through the proper diagnostics and criteria. And, uh, you know, LASIK is not for everybody, but for the right person, it can be dramatic. It can be a real life changer. 
Yeah, I was impressed with the number of tests that I had to go through mm -hmm. um, pre-surgery, even going back to cardiac. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I luckily had had a cardiac workup not long ago, so it was not a problem. But, um, you know, because of the anesthesia, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We, we have to make sure we do that safely for you. Yeah. And uh, your heart and lungs and everything needs to be in good shape before we put you through a, a procedure like that. Now, for LASIK, you don't have to go through that kind of diagnosis. Oh, okay. Why? Because we don't do LASIK with sedation of any kind. Hmm. We, we don't give you any IV um, relaxants or anything like that. We don't have the chance of having to put you to sleep completely. Hmm. Uh, with LASIK, we're not going, we're not entering the eye. You see, we're on the outside. So right. the most we would probably give you would be a baby Valium or something like this. And so that is not stressing your heart and lungs. And we're not mm -hmm. uh, in a position where if you're restless, we're going to put you to sleep completely. So LASIK is a, a different genre. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to put you through a cardiac clearance or anything like that. We have to put you through an eye clearance and an eye diagnostic and make sure that you're a good candidate. But uh, it doesn't take the same kind of general internal medicine exam that a cataract procedure would take. All right. We'll sort of wrap up. It's all the normal stuff you'd expect to hear from any doctor, exercise, diet, 20-20-20. 20-20-20. Sun protection. Sun protection. That's outdoor interesting. Outdoor activity is good. And I would think, yeah, outdoor, outdoor I would think would dry well. too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I can see that. Um, and just take care of your eyes. I mean, they're so important to what we do in this business that it's you know. absolutely general high eye health checkups. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, dentists have been good, our dental colleagues have been good about, is educating the public on the importance of routine dental health checks. So you wouldn't wait until you had a tooth falling out or were in severe tooth pain before you see a dentist. I think most people know to go in for preventive, um, you know checkups with their dentist at least at least once a year, although mm -hmm. it should be more. Um, but I think that um, most people, unless they wear glasses or contact lenses, can skip years and years and years oh, without being checked. I'm sure I did. And the scary yeah. thing about certain eye conditions is that it may not give you any any pain or warning sign. And so the only way you would know would be to get, you know, complete routine checkups. So this should be just part of health maintenance and this becomes particularly important after the age of 40. After the age of 40, the Academy of Ophthalmology rec recommends routine annual health exams, even if you're not having any trouble. And if you have a family history, you know, if you know that you have a history of any retina issues in your family or glaucoma or cataract, then the sooner you make that a part of your health routine and your uh, program, you're going to do yourself a huge service because some of these things, if we, if we pick them up quickly enough, we can preserve 20-20 vision indefinitely like for glaucoma and uh, things like this. We, we pick it up quickly. We can nip it in the bud. Well, I think, yeah, I think in my case, I, I remember I went to the eye doctor when I was in my late 20s or 30s and said, I was driving on the highway and I noticed that, you know, I had perfect vision for years. And I, I noticed that if I closed one eye and opened it, that this, just a slight difference in focus. And he did all the tests and stuff. And he basically said, don't do that. Stop doing that. Just use both eyes. You're fine. I can't measure any problem. But I don't think I went to an eye doctor again until my wife said, you either need glasses or longer arms. <laughs> so I think that was 40. And uh, then I did go once a year because he spotted the cataracts and mm -hmm. wanted to keep an eye on them. And I, you know, I got many years out of it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's been a regular thing then since then with contacts and glasses and you know, and now here. So now I'm past all that, and I thank you for that. Absolutely, and uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'm glad you're doing so well. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for helping out the people out there with talking about all this stuff, too. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks. you very much.
Well, thanks, Jeff, and thanks to Dr. Jeffrey for taking time to sit down and do that. It's uh, not often that we get to talk to medical professionals about these kind of things, but it is a really, really important area, and I certainly love the fact that FX Guide has such a wide mandate that we can, in the same week that worrying about the Emmys, be worrying about eye health. Anyway, that's it for this uh, FX podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.